Sexual assault and harassment within the military has been an enduring challenge. Some 20,000 such assaults take place every year. Now the military branches are taking tougher stances to knock down this problem. The Army, Navy, and Air Force all have new policies for assault and to make it easier for victims to come forward. Federal News Network's Abigail Russ has the latest. She joins me in studio. Tell us why now, because this has been an ongoing problem. What's new, Abigail? Well, the Defense Department has been battling sexual assault incidents for years, and an independent review commission of the agency just finished up last year. So the DOD is in the process of implementing more than 80 recommendations that came from that commission. That report was also commissioned by Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin on his first day in office, and it found three major things. The first is that the troops don't trust the military's justice system to handle sexual assaults. The second, that the system is ill-equipped to handle those assault cases, and that there are critical workplace and workforce deficiencies in assault and harassment prevention. So the report provided the Pentagon with 82 recommendations, and these policies are now the beginning of the military implementing some of them. All right. And what are some of the new rules specifically? How do they change procedures and policies? Well, to start with, the Navy and Army both implemented a safe-to-report policy that eliminates barriers for service members to report sexual assault. What that means is that any sailor, marine, cadet, midshipman, or soldier who reports a sexual assault will not be punished for minor misconduct that may have committed at or around the time of sexual assault. While sexual assault impacts all of the services, Don Christensen, the former chief prosecutor of the Air Force and the current president of Protector Defenders, said that the Marine Corps has the highest rate of sexual assault in any of the armed services. He also said that certain Navy bases are particularly affected. So before the policy, there were no protections from disciplinary actions in place for victims who may have been breaking the rules at the time of sexual assaults. So the two agencies are hoping that removing those barriers will increase victims' trust in departments and encourage them to come forward and seek care. Christensen from Protect Our Defenders had this to say. We want them to report sexual assaults. The only way we're really going to eliminate the problem or at least reduce the problem is if survivors come forward. When we don't know who the perpetrators are, we can't hold them accountable. So if they don't come forward, they're just out there to do it again. Again, that's Don Christensen, formerly of the Air Force, now with Protect Our Defenders. And Andrea Goldstein, assistant director for the Navy's Force Resiliency, said in a press release that collateral misconduct is one of the most significant barriers to reporting because of victims' fear of punishment. All right, so there seems to be a bifurcation here about minor misconduct and major misconduct. What is merely minor in this new context. So minor misconduct includes underage drinking, engaging in unprofessional relationships, or violating orders about curfews, off-limit locations, school standards, or barracks policies at the times of sexual assault. Unprofessional relationships then might mean a sexual relationship or even a officer and enlisted person relationship, which even though it might be consensual, is still not considered proper in the military context. All right. And who makes that decision whether misconduct is minor or not? So commanding officers will decide if misconduct is considered collateral based on instructions from the policy. And the COs will collect data for the agencies to gauge when and how frequently victims actually use these new protections. Safe to report that is coming in then to the armed services. And by the way, we're speaking with Federal News Network's intern Abigail Russ. What else are they doing? The Navy is implementing a no wrong door policy to create a new system for getting help to victims faster. And those are victims of sexual assault, sexual harassment, and domestic abuse. So the policy lays out a plan to train everyone responsible for caring and caring and supporting victims to give them a warm handoff if necessary. 
This means that anyone who contacts the Navy's victim care and support offices will now always receive services from either that office or be directed to another appropriate service provider. Those offices include sexual assault prevention and response programs, family family advocacy programs, and victim witness assistant programs, and more. The Navy will also now follow up throughout the process to make sure that those offices are meeting the victim's needs. Ashish Vazirani, the interim director of the Navy's Sexual Assault, Sexual Harassment, and Suicide Prevention and Response Office, said in a press release that he wants all of the victims who contact offices to hear, I will help you, regardless of who they contact. All right. And what's going on in the Army? Yes, the Army is creating a new oversight office called the Office of Special Trial Counsel, which will investigate sexual assault reports. It will report directly to Secretary Christine Wormuth and will take over independent prosecution for specific crimes on December 28, 2023. It was laid out in the 2022 National Defense Authorization Act and outlined 11 specific crimes that OSTC will have exclusive authority to prosecute. Those include murder, manslaughter, rape and sexual assaults, child pornography, wrongful broadcast, and more. Yeah, stalking, retaliation. Retaliation is a particularly bad one. That gets back to the issues of people being able to feel comfortable to report what happened to them, correct? Absolutely. Currently, sexual assault cases are prosecuted by judge advocates assigned to the local offices of the staff judge advocate and special victims prosecutors of the trial counsel assistance programs. Army spokesperson Matt Leonard said OSTC will not have control for another year because the council is still in its initial operating phase and is not fully operational yet. When OSTC does take over, the office will decide to send a case involving a covered offense to a court-martial rather than the local convening authorities or commanding officers, and will handle the litigation of those materials. And what about the Air Force? They're taking a somewhat different stance, you're finding? They are. So while the Navy and the Army are focusing on victims' response and advocacy, the Air Force is focusing on strengthening their process of discharging airmen and guardians who commit sexual assault. Under the new policy, service members who commit sexual assault will be subject to immediate initiation of discharge procedures with very few exceptions. Exceptions are barred if a child is assaulted or if an airman or guardian has a prior assault charge. So two strikes and you're out. Correct. And it could even be stricter. The service will no longer consider exceptions for personal or family or financial circumstances, good military character, or medical or mental health conditions. So the policy is much more comprehensive than the two previous rules in place. And did you hear anything from the Air Force about reporting sexual offenders proven to be offenders, which is a felon? to the National Crime Information Center because that got the Air Force in trouble about five years ago when the horrible 25 murder shooting took place at a church in Texas. The shooter was a former Air Force member who had a long, long rap sheet of assault, animal cruelty, I mean, you name it. But the Air Force discharged him but never reported his crimes to the FBI's NCIC system. And therefore, he bought guns and then shot up that church. Air Force is appealing a decision against it for $230 million for the victims. Did that come up at all, the Air Force getting real about reporting crimes to the NKICS? I personally didn't find anything in my research. But when I did reach out to the Air Force for comments on if they were going to create similar legislation as the Navy and the Army, I didn't hear back from them. So I did not have the opportunity to get their voice on that. When victims do come forward and report sexual assaults, how often are these cases actually resolved in a way that is satisfactory to the victim and to the armed service? Only a fraction of survivors actually file reports and even less make it to trial 
According to Christensen, only about 4% of all reports ever went to court in fiscal year 2020. And as of 2020, the DOD lost about 80% of the few cases that they did end up taking to court. For survivors who go through the investigation and the court martial process, which can be very abusive, to see 80% of the time their rapists walk free is not a good message to those who are thinking about reporting. Again, former Air Force official prosecutor Don Christensen. And finally, Abigail, is there any data considered when making these policies? Yes. As the branches implement policies, data shows that more survivors are slowly coming forward. Over the last 10 years, the number of survivors across the military reporting sexual assault has nearly doubled. Christensen said that in in 2020, about 5,600 men and women came forward and reported sexual assault. But just a decade ago, that number was around 2,500. Part of that could be because of an increase in sexual assault, but at least the military hopes that a lot of that is because of programs that Congress has instituted and services have instituted to get more survivors to come forward. All right, let's hope all of those actions improve that data. Federal News Network's Abigail Russ has been interning with us. Thanks so much. Thank you for having me. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Hello, I'm WIPA CEO Shane Canfield, and thank you for joining us on another episode of Lessons in Leadership. I'm honored to be joined by Angie Bailey, founder and CEO of Ananda Life. Angie has a remarkable career in public service, beginning as a GS2 clerk typist with the Social Security Administration. And over the next 40 years, Angie steadily worked her way up through the government, ultimately becoming the Chief Human Capital Officer at the Department of Homeland Security. She's been recognized with presidential rank awards by two administrations for leadership, innovation, dedication, and commitment to the country. Angie, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Shane. What a pleasure to be here. Angie, you've made quite a name for yourself as a leader in the federal workforce. Who was the first person you remember looking up to as a leader? And what about them inspired you? You I often think about this because, you know, sometimes we think of the people that we look up to the most is being somebody that throughout our career has, you know, been at the highest levels and all, but I, you know, I've got to go back to honestly, whenever I was 10 years old and uh, I remember I really wanted to play little league baseball on a boys team. I was the only girl. And interestingly, it was the women who would keep saying to me that, no, I couldn't play. And then one day, whenever I was there to sign up yet again, uh, there was this guy, his name was Delbert Beiser. And uh, I remember he had like red hair and he had wadded tobacco in his mouth and greasy overhauls and everything. And he said, you know, I'll take her, I'll take her on my team. And, you know, just looking back on that, there's so many leadership lessons and things that I just really admire about him. And actually I thought about throughout my entire career, he took a chance on somebody he didn't know. He um, put aside whatever conscious or unconscious biases that he might have had about having a girl on a team. He treated me the same. Uh, whether, you know, if I wasn't performing, I got benched just like the boys. I got no special treatment. And, and, and he was just really honest with me and he just included me in everything. And so looking back on it, you know, really, it was Delbert Beiser, our local mechanic in our little small village that was I think my inspiration for going on to, I hope, become the leader, um, you know, that, that I wanted to be. I'd say half of the guests on this podcast have had similar stories where they reach back to either childhood or 
young adulthood. And I, and I think as leaders, it's really incumbent upon us to keep that in mind, that, that what we say and do, admit it, especially in the younger ages, really can have a lifelong impact. How would you describe your leadership style? And, and how's that developed over time? I would say that the one word that describes my leadership style is that I care. Um, I guess that's more than one word, but I care. Uh, I, I've always cared about the mission. I've always cared about the people. I've always cared, you know, about making sure that that they had what they needed or that they were developing the way, uh, you know, that they aspired to develop. And I tried to take this approach of not treating people the way I wanted to be treated, but instead treat people the way they wanted they want to be treated. And I think that that really kind of developed over my career. You know, I started out just like most leaders do where it's very results driven. It's all about the bottom line. You need to make sure that you get everything accomplished because, you know, that's what everybody's looking for, the goals, the metrics, et cetera. But I think as you mature and you go along, you start to, to your point, you draw back on those early childhood days or early adult young, you know, whenever you're a young adult and you say, you know, I think that there's a little bit more to this than just the bottom line. And so over time, I really began to, I, I think, see a much bigger picture and the entire ecosystem, if you will, and how the people themselves fit into all of this. And that ultimately, at the end of the day, it was all about the people. And so, I, you know, I think my, my maturity allowed me to then shift and focus more on the people than, than so much on results and bottom line. You've been recognized with two presidential rank awards two different administrations. You founded your own company. Tell us a little bit more about your background from the beginning and and how did that lead you to where you are today? Well, you know, it's kind of interesting, like you said, that I started out as a GS2, a social security administration. I mean, what I really wanted to be was a criminal prosecuting attorney. That was absolutely my dream. I sometimes joke and say what I really wanted to be was a mafia don, but that wasn't going to work out. So, you know, had to be a criminal prosecuting attorney. But, you know, I had to get a job to pay for college. I, you know, it wasn't in the cards that I was going to be able to go to college without a job. So I applied at the social Security Administration, or I'm sorry, at the unemployment office, and lo and behold, I got a job at Social Security. I didn't even know it was federal, to be honest. Uh, from there, I went to the Department of Defense, and I found this, this career field called labor and employee relations. And honestly, it was as close as I was going to get to being a criminal prosecuting attorney. I didn't go on to be a, a criminal prosecuting attorney, but I went on courtesy of the Department of Defense to get both my bachelor's and my master's in leadership, because the whole study of leadership, I just find incredibly fascinating. Um, You know, from historical to current, current times, I just, it's just something that's just really fascinated me. And so I just, I would say I'm a lifelong learner of leadership. And then I would say some of the other things that got me maybe where I am today is I never really said no to anything. If people asked me to take on a new challenge, even if I wasn't sure I was going to be successful at it, I would say, you know what, not sure this is going to work out, but more than happy to give it a try. And it always worked out. But I think giving things a try and just not saying no to opportunities is what really led from one position to the next. I feel like I was always rewarded for just stepping in or stepping up and taking on the challenges that sometimes no one else wanted to do. Angie, thanks so much for joining us today. 
Oh, thank you, Shane. It's such a pleasure. I, I really appreciate you giving me this opportunity. Thank you. This has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm CEO of WEPA, Shane Canfield. Looking forward to talking to you next time. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Ladies and gentlemen, we need you. The Benevolent and Protective Order of Elks is looking for you to help support veterans, help with youth scholarships, and be a force in your community. Being a member of the Elks is where you can do all this and much more. We are 31 lodges strong across the state of Iowa. Help pass on our principles of charity, justice, brotherly love, and fidelity. If interested, go to elks.org and use the lodge locator to find a lodge near you. Elks care. Elks share. Brought to you by the Iowa Elks Association.